0: Today is August 28th, 2017, and my guest is Jillian Hadfield, the Richard L. and Antoinette Shamoy Kirtland Professor of Law and Professor of Economics at the University of Southern California, and the author recently of Rules for a Flat World Why Humans Invented Law and How to Reinvent It for a Complex Global Economy, published by Oxford University Press. And that book is the subject of today's conversation. Jillian, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Hi, Russ. Really great to be
0: here. So let's start with the central idea of the book. Why do we need to reinvent law for our complex global economy? What's what's missing with what we have now?
1: Well, the the, the reason we need to reinvent it is first that uh, it's critical infrastructure. So uh, it's not just something we layer on top of our market economy to you know maybe respond to market failures, but it's the basic platform on which humans have always built sets of rules. They've always built whatever relationships are creating value in in that society. And the the legal infrastructure we have today, which is what everybody thinks of when we say law, law made by governments, nation states, um, changes when you cross boundaries, uh, jurisdictional boundaries, uh, mostly done through closed um, uh, professions and public production. That's not working very well. It's It's too expensive, it's too complex, and uh, surprisingly, it's just not solving the kinds of problems that we face in light of globalization and technology and our increasingly uh, diverse uh, global environment. So the reason we need to fix that is it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Most ordinary people can't access it all. And uh, even for large global corporations who can afford the best of the best, uh, what they will tell you is it's, it's not really doing what they need to do um, to operate in a global complex environment. And it's certainly not well adapted to managing the changes that are coming down the pike in terms of artificial intelligence, um, new technologies, and so on.
0: Explain a little bit on what you mean by legal infrastructure, which is really the center of the book. Uh, I think most people probably misunderstand that to mean simply things like how the courts work, but you mean something much broader. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, so so I use the term legal infrastructure because I really do want people thinking in terms of infrastructure, the thing that you're building on, and the thing that's taken for granted. It's shared capital, and I mean something more than uh, the the legal system, as you say. So most people, if you say law to them, they will think, as you say. You know, uh, laws, rules are made by legislatures and regulatory agencies. They are adjudicated in public courts, state courts, uh, enforced by the state. Um, And uh, we talk about different legal systems like common law systems and civil code systems, continental, Anglo-American. And what I mean by legal infrastructure is that stuff, that stuff we're currently using to make and enforce our rules, but I also mean the practices, the norms, the beliefs that structure it, the cost of accessing it, uh, the ways in which uh, our markets for legal services and legal rules are organized and how well they work. So, you know, not just, um, you know, the fact that you would get legal advice, you can only get legal advice in, in America, from a uh, licensed state uh, licensed attorney in the state, but I'm also interested in well, what's that lawyer going to tell you? How are they educated? What will they uh, what will they bring? What human capital will they bring to resolving the problem you're, uh, you you want to address with them? How much will it cost, and so on? So I'm I'm trying to think of the entire uh, mix of both the design stuff and the emergent stuff in the same way that our traffic infrastructure is is defined both by the roads we've built and how the traffic develops over time and how people use it and what people do with it.
0: So long-time listeners here will recognize the distinction that Hayek made uh, between law and legislation. Uh, For Hayek, legislation was what governments and legislative bodies did. Law, he reserved that term for the expectations people had about the rules of the game and you're dif- you're making a slightly different uh set of distinctions and i actually i'm going to try to get to one in a little bit that i found extremely uh extremely uh useful and 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 thought provoking but the other point i want to i want to get to that you make is that we should be thinking about the rules by which we make the rules or the laws by which we make the laws and how we're so used to the current system which is centuries old here in America uh, that we can't even imagine really uh, breaking out of that box. And talk about why that's important and why that should be a focus.
1: Yes. So, uh, and I find this is especially true with economists and political scientists. We define law as the stuff we know now, the system we know now, like you say, with governments producing it. And states enforcing it—that's not even actually a very good description of what how a lot of our rules are 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 created and enforced today. But it's it's what dominates people's thinking. So we talk about changing the law. We talk about what will we lobby Congress to uh, to do, or what regulations will we propose or oppose, um, and. The 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 reason it's so critical to think about, to, to recognize that's not the only way to make law. Law is uh, the way that, actually, uh, uh, my colleague uh, uh, Barry Weingast at Stanford and I have been thinking about this for quite some time. We really define law as, you know, a, a set of uh, classifications that a community has landed on. So everybody knows that everybody knows that it's okay to... Uh, not do what you said you were going to do if you didn't shake hands on the deal, because everybody knows that everybody knows that shaking hands on the deal is what's required to make it enforceable. Um, and uh, there's lots of ways you can do that uh, for the community to do that. Um, law is this way is this set of rules that we have about how we do that, and the reason we need to think about how we what the rules are for making the rules who can make them, how can they make them, what can they look like, how are they enforced, um, is that that's the production system for our legal infrastructure. And we spend a lot of time talking about what rules we think we should have and almost none talking about, well, how well is the production system uh, working? So I want to get people thinking about what's the process by which all that legal infrastructure is being produced. That's what's affecting behavior on the ground, and we need to think about that production system just like economists would think about production in, in other settings.
0: Um, That's, it's a great point, and I, I, I think the way most economists think about it is the regulatory structure we have is whatever the legislature produces, and then whatever the administrative state then implements, and maybe it's not always enforced. That's, I think the economist's contribution is to remind people that not all laws are enforced, uh, which is a very important point, because I think it's often assumed that, well, it's against the law. So it doesn't happen. But of course, it does happen uh, often in in many, especially in in other countries, but even in the United States. Uh, Legal enforcing laws is expensive, and a lot of times there's no stomach for enforcing certain laws. And so We end up with a very complex set of rules, some of which are on the books. So the one that Don Boudreau likes to talk about when he's been on here is the speed limit's not 55. You you can go 57 for sure. Uh, In some places, you can go 61. 62, you start to get into some risk of, of being in trouble for speeding. But there's this complex interaction between what's legislated and then the social norms that develop around it.
1: Right. No, it, it, and, and so this, this phrase that a lot of people use, uh, Roscoe Pound introduced uh, the idea of this difference between law on the books and law on the ground. And part of talking about legal infrastructure rather than legal systems is to emphasize the, well, we're really interested in what's happening on the ground. Yeah, as you sure. say, what are people enforcing? What, what does your lawyer tell you is the actual rule? Like you just said with speed limits, right? Well, the actual rule is not 55, although they're allowed to ticket you for going 56 but everybody knows that everybody knows that that's really not what what's likely to happen and therefore you can evaluate your risks of you know heading down the highway at at 62. um our legal uh production system is a very very closed system uh that uh lawyers uh are, are particularly prone to i think to the view even though they are well aware that things are different on the ground. We have this strong view uh, that, you know, you have made law when you put it down on a piece of paper. Um, and as you point out, that's not true even in advanced settings like the U.S. And it's really not true um, in countries where we recognize they need more rule of law to, to support better economic growth and other, other goals. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. We, we need to be really thinking about what's happening on the ground.
0: I want to come back to this closed aspect of the system, because that's really interesting. Um, but I first want to read a quote about this norms, rules, interaction and that I think you make extremely well and I hadn't thought about before. It goes like this. It's a quote from the book. Social norms are not the product of an enterprise. They are organic. They emerge and adapt to processes that may be hidden and hard to control. There may be social entrepreneurs who try to establish a social norm by preaching from pulpits or billboard or blog, for example, but there is no single recognized process that everyone understands is the way that a norm becomes the norm. It is when norms become the subject of a deliberate project intended definitively to designate a particular set of rules, including the rules for making the rules as law, that social norms can become law. And I that there's a lot there. It's a very um rich quote. But the idea I you know, I talk a lot on this program about emergent order and about how norms emerge and how they're hard to control. And you, you can urge people to do something and it may make no impact whatsoever, or you there can be a social movement that changes the way people look at something like smoking or uh attitudes of various kinds. Uh but your point that until it is when norms become the subject of a deliberate project, meaning they're not emergent in the same way. There's some explicit process that people recognize as the rules for making the rules, which is not true of social norms. Social norms, you know, the idea of wearing a hat, the idea of, of greeting someone you don't know well by their first name, all these changes that have taken place. Uh, in our culture that are constantly changing the way language and and social interaction evolves, those are under no one's control. And everyone understands they're under no one's control, and yet they also understand that they change and that you have to pay attention. But law, the point you're trying to make here, which I think is an interesting, it's a different distinction than the Hayekian one, you're arguing that law is when a social norm has an established public Objective process, transparent process for how the rules get made. Legislation, legislation being one of those, but maybe not the only one.
1: Right, right, and and maybe transparent, but not necessarily so. I think what's That's really so critical, transparent, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so I like to say, look, it's 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 when and the the concept that really matters here is uh, that of common knowledge, and that is. When does so? We, the in the emergent setting, in the social norm setting, we have common knowledge that everybody knows that everybody knows uh, that men don't wear dresses to work. Um, and uh, when we are talking about law, we're saying the source of the rule is an identifiable institution or person, and everybody knows that everybody knows that that is the institution or person it's the king, it's the the Council of Elders, it's the legislature, it's the community council, it's what we voted on at the, at the camp <laughs> the night before. And what's critical, if it really is law in the sense that, that I'm using it, everybody knows, everybody knows that that's now the rule. And the the capacity for deliberate content, which is I really think the important thing to emphasize about law, not the enforcement mechanism. Let's assume the enforcement mechanism is exactly the same as in uh, with social norms, which is to say, ordinary people deciding, "Hey, I'm not playing with you because you don't follow the rules." Um, what's really critical about law, and the reason it's such a critical human invention is that when you have transferred from the world of all your norms are just emergent to the capacity to now say, hey, everybody, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to choose the rule. It's now okay for men to wear dresses to work or uh, for people to um, get out of contracts when there's been a significant change in circumstances. Whatever it is, we can go to sleep one night with the old rule, We can make the new rule, wake up in the morning, and have confidence that everybody in the community knows that that's the new rule and that that's the basis on which we'll be moving forward. And that's really critical in terms of the capacity to adapt to changing circumstances, changing knowledge, um, complexity.
0: But just as an aside, and I don't think you talk about this in the book, uh, even when you even when everyone wakes up the next day and know there's a new rule that says contracts are not um, 100% enforceable because there may be, let's say, acts of nature uh, that everybody agrees on, that that's now known to be uh, a reason that you don't have to uphold your end of the contract, it's still going to be a question of what an act of nature is. And I, I just want to mention that in Law, Legislation, and Liberty, Hayek argues that what judges should do when they interpret a dispute over acts of nature – is try to figure out what people had in mind and what their social norms were underlying that legislated contractual uh, requirement. Because inevitably, there's still uncertainty. There's no way, and there can never be a way, that any law, rule, legislation can cover every case. And so almost by definition, not almost, by definition, there has to be interpretation some point along the way and a mechanism for who does the interpreting.
1: Absolutely. Um, the, in, in fact, I think Winegast uh, uh, and I have been really be, been emphasizing that we think you start to see the emergence of a formal institution that has that capacity. As I say, not just when I say announce the rule, it's forward looking, as you said, you know, acts of nature are a valid excuse for not performing your contract. Um, that that you know we can announce that as you point out, that's going to require interpretation in various settings. There's going to be ambiguity in what's an act of nature, um, and it's precisely the pressure uh, and the creation of ambiguity in what the rules are that we think generates the demand for, and then the production of. Institutions that perform that role, where everybody knows, everybody knows that that's the institution. You know, we can argue about it, but we've now set up a court system, or we've designated, um, you know, a, a smart member of the community, uh, we can whoever, agree. An, an arbitrator. Yeah, we can agree that's on right, an
0: arbitrator. We
1: could. That's right. We can set up what, but whatever the institution is, we know that, you know, that, that when we go to that res, that ambiguity resolution institution. What that institution or person says, that's it. We stop arguing. Um, I may still think it's the wrong answer, right? I hate the fact that I lost the argument, but I do know that everybody knows that everybody knows that that was the answer. And I, therefore I could predict that's how people will go forward. If I don't pay up on my, um, my contract uh, after the court has said, sorry, that's not a valid, uh, that's not an act of nature. That's not an excuse and performance then I know that the community will say, ah, oh, she breached her contract. Uh, she's less reliable as a business partner or uh, somebody we're, you know, we're not going to do a deal with. Uh, so if, that, that ambiguity reduction is absolutely central to the reason for the emergence of law and the function it, perf- it, it should be performing.
0: So I want to I probe into that a little bit because uh, in the middle of the book – You spend a lot of time arguing that our our current innovations and technology aren't served well by the current set of rules, and it's not enough to just change the rules. We need a better way for how the rules get set and allow more innovation in that process. And and we'll get to the details of of what you propose uh, in the last third of the conversation, our conversation. But I want to try to set the stage for that and challenge your view a little bit and try to get you to clarify it a little bit. So we recently had Benedict Evans on Econ Talk talking about autonomous vehicles. You mentioned them in a number of places in the book. It's pretty clear that the regulatory legal landscape for an autonomous vehicle is uncertain right now. Yet people are pouring billions, literally billions of dollars into these innovations because they assume that it will get, quote, fixed. They assume – that will quote, figure out how to get there from here. And one of your arguments is is that the current system doesn't handle these kind of innovations very well. And what I want to ask you is why. I want to push you on why, because it it daunts on me that part of the reason that it doesn't solve these systems, these problems so well, isn't just because our legal system was set up in 1750 or 1850 and comes from England or whatever – it's that these are really complex, unusual, and not easily defined situations. One example obviously being liability. You talk about this when the, the autonomous vehicle hits a pedestrian, whose fault is it? Is it the programmer? or is it the corporation that made it, et cetera? So talk about why those kind of problems aren't served well by our current system and why we need a different way to set the rules.
1: So, I think the important thing about the autonomous vehicle is a is is a great example because what we're uh looking at the development of there is it, it's not just that it's an autonomous car that it used to have a human in the driver's seat and now it's uh got a a computer you know it, what we'll be seeing the development of of course is you know an entire connected system uh those cars are going to have sensors in them. Uh, they're going to be talking to other cars, they're going to be talking to weather, they're going to be talking to traffic, they're going to be reading the environment, uh, there's going to be a changing number of autonomous and human-driven cars on cities and streets that'll go place to place to place with different sets of rules. Uh, so, so we want to think about that as a, you know a, a complex adaptive system in that formal sense of complex adaptive system, meaning there's lots of interacting agents Making lots of decisions, and it's very difficult to know where it'll where it'll go next. That's a really new type of problem for us to be figuring out how to regulate. So the critique I'm making about our existing systems for solving that is that they are currently dominated by um, we have technical experts, of course, who are playing a role, but dominated by uh, you know, the legal infrastructure we have available, which is lots and lots of lawyers involved in the development of policy, the drafting of policy, the implementation of policy, advice about about legal rules. and um, and, and we have a particular kind of technology of regulation. Our technology is smart people will sit down, figure out what the rules should be write them down somewhere. Uh, Lawyers will advise about them. People will make decisions. There will be uh, potential enforcement actions, public and private, and penalties imposed for failing to follow the rules. Um, Well, you know, to to regulate complex uh, traffic systems with lots of machines in them, you know, maybe we need technology to do that. Maybe we need... um, AI that is actually performing the function of regulation in constant data exchange with what's happening on the roads and maybe the capacity to directly uh, intervene in the way a machine learning algorithm is developing or the way a particular vehicle is performing or sensors are performing at any point in time. And that's the kind of thing that our existing approach to building a regulatory structure uh, just really can't do. Uh, So I I think the reason I'm emphasizing we need to be thinking about our production process for rules and regulation is where are we going to get the new ideas about how to regulate? Where are we going to get the new approaches to regulation that I think we'll need for a much more complex environment?
0: So I'm going to take you down a little thought experiment then. Um, you know One of the challenges of the autonomous vehicle is it's really expensive to develop. Five or six different sets of roads. So we start off perhaps incorrectly, but we generally start off with the assumption that autonomous vehicles are going to use the public roads, not private sets of roads developed by Tesla, Uber, Apple, Google, et cetera. And what if one way we could regulate this market is to give all those different uh, providers, say, of autonomous transport, uh, the authority to set their own rules, uh, knowing that they're in competition with each other. So they're not going to just set rules that make them rich, because if they do that, they're not going to attract too many customers because they have competitors. And then you would argue, if I understand your book correctly, that the government could impose some meta rules on those regulations, or they could even, which is the main thrust of the last part of your book, we, we could imagine private rule makers that weren't Google, Tesla, Apple, et cetera, that were regulated by uh, government. So using that setting, perhaps, try to tell us uh, how a different model would work for the production of rules.
1: Yeah. So I want to really distinguish the proposal I'm making, which I refer to as uh, super regulation or competitive approved private regulators as a a regulatory option. Um, not not it doesn't you know not all regulation can be implemented this way. and one of the things I'd like to see economists and policymakers working on more is where could this work. Uh, but it's different from self-regulation in the sense of uh, Tesla, Google, Apple coming up with their own rules uh, may be subject to some government oversight. I really think we need to be looking at the uh, development of uh, basically, an industry of uh, that's attracting investment and attracting uh, uh, good engineers and more. Uh, that's that's dedicated to the problem of figuring out how do you regulate in a complex environment and being able to sell those services. Now, the the fact of the matter is that the Googles and the Teslas and the Apples. Thinking about this autonomous vehicle world are already in the business. They know they need a regulatory environment. Uh, they are already in the business of participating in the building of that regulatory system, partly through through lobbying Congress and legislatures and governments around the world, um, but but also through participating in private uh, efforts of standard setting. Um, and what I'm saying is we already know we need the private sector much more heavily engaged in the problem solving of figuring out better regulatory regimes. Um, How can we bring that within a public law framework that says, okay, you can figure out how to regulate, but here are the publicly determined, accountable uh, criteria that that regulation has to achieve. So very simplistically, in the case of the self-driving car, um, you know, there's a tolerable level of, of accidents on the road or, and, and congestion levels, um, and you've got to hit those publicly determined uh, outcome criteria, but we're not going to tell anybody how they achieve those, those outcomes. Uh, we're going to let private regulators who develop systems that then private companies um, have to, uh, purchase into, um, uh, we're going to let those private regulators figure out better ways to achieve those, those objectives.
0: Expand on what you mean by a private regulator, because for people who haven't read the book, that might sound like a weird concept and you can move away from autonomous vehicles if you want to talk about a, a different setting to make it clear. But what you have in mind is, is sort of a middleman of regulation that would, as you say, attract investment, charge for services And be competitive. It's not like a private version of the EPA. It's a one of many monitoring or regulating bodies that would be distinct from the corporate world, but also not governmental, that the governmental process would oversee. So give a try to explain that a little more clearly.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's it's we're thinking here of let's let's it could be it could be a nonprofit entity. It doesn't have to be uh, a for-profit entity. We already have lots of uh, nonprofit entities that produce regulation right now. So, uh, Finra uh, regulates broker-dealers. That's a private nonprofit entity uh, operating under the supervision of the SEC. Um, and the difference between the model I'm talking about and the Finra model is, I'm talking about okay, we've got Finra, uh, but we it, it has a monopoly. So it's really operating um, as if it was a government. And what we see is it behaves like it's a government. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's like it's a government agency. Um, but so what I'm trying to, to suggest we want to do is we want to say, OK, it's appropriate for the, the the political realm to say, you know, here are the criteria for regulating. Uh, here are outcome criteria. Here are things we want from regulation you know, say, in the financial sector. Um, and, uh, you know, there's various ways in which we are going to, as a government, now verify that our private regulators are achieving those outcomes. We can audit them. We can, uh, you know, sample uh, particular cases. We can, we can talk to the regulated entities, we can talk to the consumers or customers, businesses that are dealing with the regulated entity. Um, But the ways in which that's achieved, whether it's achieved through written down rules that are adjudicated ex post, or it's achieved through auditing, or it's achieved through, you know, constant data monitoring, uh, whichever way it's achieved, individual providers of that service can compete um, for the most effective ways to achieve those objectives, um, so the the difference here is, we, so it's important to recognize we already have lots of private regulators uh, in the business. They tend to be monopolies, um, and or they're voluntary, so that companies can choose or cho- choose to or choose not to uh, comply with their their standards. Um, but. Uh, the, the, the I, I'm really emphasizing all three pieces of that. So it's a private regulator. Uh, so that's a profit or a nonprofit entity that's in the business of developing regulatory schemes, regulatory services. Uh, it's approved in the sense that it's licensed by the state that it's achieving the objectives that are politically set. Uh, and it's competitive. Uh, there, are, there are multiple... Um, Private regulators are competing for the business of providing regulatory services. You have to be licensed to participate in that market. Um, but uh, once you once you are achieving those objectives, you can ach- you can explore, experiment,
0: um,
1: invent better ways of doing it.
0: So the analogy that comes to my mind, and you can tell me if this is a good analogy or not, is um, kosher food. There are a lot of different. Agencies that will certify that food is kosher. Uh, they have slightly different standards, but on the big things, they don't disagree. No pork, just to take one example, pork's out. So if if a kosher-certifying agency says that this product is kosher, barring fraud or an accident, you can be pretty confident as a consumer it doesn't have pork in it. Uh, there might be other differences in the level of kosher. Of kosher that that is kept by particular agencies and consumers learn about what those differences are and choose products accordingly those agencies charge the firms for their certification it 's very competitive um, it 's overseen by the government in some dimension in that if you're if you 're caught if you're fraud if you 're defrauding your um, if you 're defrauding kosher consumers I, I think we could kosher consumers can take you to court um not quite what you have in mind but it's something like that i suspect is that a fair example
1: yep yep that's an example so that's a you know there that's a certification regime we have lots of examples of certification regimes organic certification and they're they're under different levels of government uh oversight um i don't know enough about the way the kosher certification system works. Sometimes what happens with the government oversight is the government is still in the business saying you have to have the following rules, or you have to, uh, you know, your rules have to be approved uh, by our agency. So that's how FINRA operates, for example, with the SEC. And I'd like to see more of the, the regulation of the regulator focused on the outcomes. Are you achieving the objectives that uh, have been set for this type of regulation, the reason that we're regulating. So the only difference between, but the, really the other than that, the only difference between what you're describing there and what I'm thinking of here is that's a voluntary regime. Correct. Somebody can decide, I'd like to be certified kosher, I'd like to be certified organic or not, and then there's a way of doing that. So that's solving an information problem in the market. Uh, and And the difference here is I'm saying, okay, let's take some of the features of that system, and now can we use that? Uh, to uh, think about how we regulate workplace safety, can we use that to think about how we would regulate uh, the use of machine learning in uh, loan agreement in, in loan decisions uh, or autonomous vehicles, as you said? Um, so it's, it's really taking um, there, there's features of this system in place uh, all over. There's much greater role than I think people appreciate. Uh, Already for private providers of regulatory regimes, in a lot of cases, we leave that to the actual regulated entity itself, which I think is problematic
0: it's nuts. Um,
1: or it's voluntary <laughs> or it's not really supervised or we're not really holding it accountable to publicly set um, criteria and I think this is uh, you know a critical point that uh, so I use the example of uh, the right to be forgotten. Um, In Europe, you know, Europe has introduced a a directive or a decision out of the European Court of Justice uh, in litigation with Google uh, saying, you know, people have the right to be forgotten by search engines. So you can you have to be able to petition the search engine to stop producing old or invalid or false information about you in searches. So that's a very uh, elaborate right to have created Uh, but governments are not capable of actually implementing that regulation. And so it's been handed to search engines like Google to do the actual adjudication of that. Um, And I think at some point last year, Google was uh, reporting that they were adjudicating about 500 of these a day. Um, Okay, so the reason it's being handed to Google is the government can't afford it, doesn't have the technology. I'm quite sure Google's not... Stepping up to hand them all their access to all their servers, so they yeah. can find the stuff that's not supposed to be in that's there. That's
0: problematic for a different reason, right? It's, yeah.
1: So, yeah. so it's handed. So it's handed to a private regulator. Now it's handed to Google to regulate itself. I'd like, you know, for there to be an alternative where it's, you know, Hadfield Inc. or Roberts Inc. or whatever. That's, uh, hey, I, I've got uh, a, a lean, um, effective way of implementing the objectives of that regulation, people being forgotten on the internet. Um, and I'm now selling that service. I'm demonstrating to governments around the world that I ch- achieve their objective. Um, and now I'm competing uh, to sell that service to, and to Google. Google's being told you have to purchase a service like that. Uh, and you have to purchase one that uh, the uh, political bodies have Certified, licensed, achieves the objectives that we're looking for.
0: So, let's talk about a marketing challenge that you have with this idea, which is that when I was reading your book, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting, and I really liked the idea that if there was this intermediate layer of uh, private regulation, there'd be more innovation, like we we're just talking about with the Google example. But my my general thought would be, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that this is not appealing to really anybody. For hardcore libertarians, which I am one, but, I, but I'm but i sympathetic to some of what you're pushing for, but most hardcore libertarians are going to say, oh, all you're adding is another layer of regulation that just pushes it farther from accountability and the, the regulated company will get cozy with the private regulator. It's going to be hard for there to be competition. There's going to be economies of scale. Uh, and then that's on the free market side on the regulatory pro whatever you want to call it government interventionist side they're going to say oh well this is just a mistake we just need to make government better at regulating we don't need this so does anybody like this idea (laughs) i mean it's interesting and creative and clever but does anybody like it yeah
1: yeah um uh well uh, i'm working on it um (laughs) Uh, yeah, so so I think the, the point is that both, both positions that you described, I would say, are fantasies um, uh, in, in a complex environment. So, so fantasy number one is that uh, we can have this thing called free markets without, uh, without rules. Well, there's no such thing as a free market in that sense. Uh, all markets are constituted by rules uh, and, and nobody would play in a market that had... Well, you couldn't even define a market, right? You can't define a market if you can't define who owns what. Uh, what are the criteria under which X is transferred to uh, from A to B for a price? Uh, I mean, everything we talk about as economists is uh, is built on a pretty thick environment of what we are taken for granted rules about the way the game works. Uh, why don't we see... Uh, I mean, I think everybody agrees that, you know, one of the most important reasons we don't see growth in poor and developing countries at the rates that we think we should be, why there were challenges, uh, tremendous challenges still for uh, transition countries, is a lack of what now people call governance or the rule of law. Uh, You can't can't have markets without basic legal infrastructure. So that's point number one. This is not just about interfering in markets. And developing rules to interfere it's about building the basis of that market so, so that's fantasy
0: so let me concede okay. let me concede that and and i I take the point I think some people use it as a trump card to say therefore all regulation is is required and that's obviously not your point no. so what your point is which i which I really like is there's going to be some regulation but then you have to make the case that your private regulator is better than the government so right you're adding this other layer. There's, there's going to be uncertainty about how the government enforces. I don't know. It, it, it's. Just, I think it's still a tough sell to a free marketer, or do some of us like it? I kind of like it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well I'm getting there. Yeah. Um, uh, so so uh, let, let me just go to fantasy number two: right. of the idea of go just government can do it, and say, look, government can't. Uh, government. I, I like governments. I think governments should be doing lots of stuff, um, but they are not. The type of entity that we think of as well adapted to innovate—they uh, don't produce technology. Uh, they, you know, they're they're not going to be in that in that business, right? And I'm so partly saying, look, we need innovative approaches to how to regulate complex things. We need jurisdiction jumping uh, solutions for regulating uh, complex technologies. Uh, because it's it's a global market, it's a global system, it's a global internet, um, and our existing governments are all territorially uh, based. We need something that's going to jump those jump those boundaries well. Um, and so the fact that uh, we can we can you know the the idea that oh well if the private sector can produce it, government can produce it. I mean I think that's the that was the mistake of the reinventing government effort that said, well, let's just get government to behave more like the private sector. It's like, well, no, it operates under a totally different set of rules and incentives um, for good reason uh, to achieve different objectives. Um, so, so is this layering on just it's just more regulation? Oh, my God, it's just, you know, we're going to double, triple, quadruple the amount of regulation that we have. The point here is that it's I, I'm, I'm aiming at a real shift in what we think of as government regulation. Right now, we have almost all our regulation through governments is command and control style. You know, this is the technology you have to use. This is the behavior you have to engage in. This is how often you have to, uh, uh, you know, review your transactions. This is what you have to be able to prove to us. Um, as opposed to outcomes, right? You can't have more accidents than this in the workplace. You can't have more um Suspicious transactions than such and such in your in your uh, banking system, uh, so it it's shifting that to the the idea that government is over is is getting into the role of establishing the outcome criteria. Those are the politically determined outcomes that we require, and getting out of the business of how are we going to produce that, and. Uh, so that, so that's actually a very different and potentially smaller role for government. It's not a less important role for government. I'm, I'm not in the business of trying to kill off governments. Um, uh, this is a different role for government. And, and I analogize it to the shift from central planning uh, to uh, a regulated market-based uh, uh, economy, you know, We used to have about 40 percent of the world or more under a regime where governments decided which apartments to build and what dresses to make for this season and what foods to have on the shelf and how much steel to to manufacture. Uh, And, you know, that's a system for, you know, lots of reasons. But I think an important one is economies became so complex that's very difficult to to continue to operate. And what we have as an alternative is, okay, government gets out of the business of deciding how much steel to produce, but it does get into the business of making sure that the private providers who are deciding how much steel to produce are doing so through a competitive uh, system. So we have antitrust law, we have fraud law, we um, uh, we might have rules in different environments that says, and you have to make it available to poor people at this price with a subsidy or whatever. So we, we've we changed the role of government. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily uh, uh, more regulation at all. The fantasy on that side is the idea that somehow we can just have less regulation. Uh, I think that's just a very unhelpful conversation to be having. We can have differences, political differences about um, you know how much we should try and change the outcome of whatever markets we construct, but the real argument should be about how are we going to produce the basic rules of how those markets operate
0: so one of the things I don't think you talk about in the book is public choice in that the incentives facing the people who currently make the rules are I assume somewhat in their favor, meaning. The reason we don't have your world isn't just because they haven't read your book. Uh, they may not like that world for themselves so much, the people who right now are the gatekeepers to the rules. So for a a politician to give up uh, control over uh, the current structure the way the current structure is set up may not be in their self-interest. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I, I think that's uh, I think I think that's uh, exactly right, and I do think that's another reason to be to be thinking about this. One of the reasons I think it could be helpful to focus much more on outcomes rather than uh, the detailed form of regulation is that's potentially a much more transparent uh, approach to regulation in the sense that we're having political debates, politicians are taking political stands on. What should the outcome variables be what should the be what should the metrics be for deciding what's effective and what's not effective regulation rather than having two thousand page statutes produced or bills produced through uh, a very non transparent process of lobbyists and civil servants and um, you know politicians and other kinds of money in there, the the role for corporations that are you know lobbying about their own the regulation will be affecting them. I think that's a very non-transparent process, and I don't think our systems work very well at all uh, in that context. So i spent a fair bit of time in the book talking about uh, you know the the way in which our regulatory instruments, our legal instruments have become so complex. who really know? does anybody know what's in most of these statutes or bills that are being uh, being voted on. Um, so I think, I, I think it, it can be more transparent, but I completely agree with you that public choice is a, is a big, um, obstacle here. And that's also why I talk about the, the market for, uh, for lawyers, uh, because, you know, one of the groups that I'm saying needs to, um, you know, not be, uh, so fully in charge of how our legal infrastructure, is designed and developed uh, our lawyers, to you know, kind of have have too much uh, too much sway over how we think about these things, um, and yeah, that's that that's usually the the this could never happen because lawyers wouldn't let let it happen. Uh, response that I get,
0: but we can uh, hold their feet to the fire a little better, and we can put political pressure on them to give up some of their power. And I, I want to turn to that because that was a very interesting part of the book. And particularly since we recently had an episode, uh, with Christy Chapin on the American medical association and how it shaped, uh, the evolution of medical care in the United States, our healthcare system. Talk about how the American bar association constrains, um, our current legal infrastructure. And cause it, it even someone like myself, who's somewhat cynical about uh, the American Bar Association, learned some unfortunate things about what they're able to uh, do. So talk talk about what they do and have done historically.
1: Yeah, so let, let's, let's go back. To, if we go back to, uh, say, the 19th century uh, in in the U.S., 19th century is wide open. Anybody can practice law. In fact, a lot of states deliberately put in place legislation that said that that Anybody who wanted to practice law could do so. Uh, there were no real, very few law schools. There were no requirements of the bar. You know, if there were any bar exams, it was a couple of questions with a judge uh, to be admitted to the bar. So it's it's a very open system. Now, uh, the American Bar Association forms at the end of the 19th century with the uh, the important goal of saying, look, we need. We're facing the transformations of that economy, the industrial economy. Uh, we need more uniformity, we need we need better law, we need smarter law, it's important. Um, so they uh, they began a 20, 30, 40-year process of what I argue is sort of creating a platform that really worked very well for the 20th century, much more uniform, high-quality legal infrastructure uh, that allowed national businesses to emerge because they had some confidence about what was happening place to place, you didn't have conflicting jurisdictions and so on. But that process of, uh, and, and the American Bar Association, it's important to reme- remember, is just a trade association of lawyers. It, it actually doesn't have, uh, well, it has only one formally recognized role, and that's, uh, uh, it's, it's the entity that's recognized for accrediting uh, law schools in the country, which you have, and you have to be accredited if you want federal funds, uh, and most states' uh, bar associations have required accreditation uh, to become a member of the bar. But what you what you end up with is um, the American Bar Association coordinating uh, bar associations in each of the 50 states, and it's the bar associations in each of 50 states that create a bunch of rules that say, hey, there's there's really only one way to be, you have to have a law degree and be licensed as a lawyer to provide any kind of legal goods or services in the market, uh, which is a very expansive definition. Um, you, uh, you have to follow what we'll call our ethics rules in providing those legal services. Um, but the ethics rules, some of which are truly ethics rules and, and really very important and longstanding about Um, you know, fidelity to courts and uh, protecting confidentiality, confidentiality, conflicts of interest and so on. Um, But the really important regulations in there, and they are regulations, they're economic regulations and they're economic regulations that say, um, you know, a lawyer can't be in a uh, partnership or a business entity with somebody who's not licensed as a lawyer. They can't be uh, of any kind of equity funding from somebody who's not licensed as a lawyer. They can't be employed by uh, a corporation that is uh, controlled by anybody who's not a lawyer. Uh, they can't enter into contracts with people who are not lawyers or businesses that are not run by lawyers in which they share profits or revenues. So just basic incentive contracts, uh, you can't enter into those. And I think that's uh, a tremendously problematic set of rules for the prospect of uh, inventing the kinds of responsive, uh, innovative, legal infrastructure that I think we need for a much more complex environment uh, or even solving a problem we've had for decades, which is uh, reducing the cost of law so that uh, more people can actually make use of it, um, uh, make use of legal, legal services. Um, so so I think, I think it's that economic regulation that is overseen by bar associations and under the leadership of the ABA. But the ABA proposes rules and bar associations uh, have to choose to adopt them.
0: What's it like in other countries, though? Do they have cheaper legal services, more effective legal services, or does every country tend to have a national organization like this that has restricted – innovation in the, le- in the provision of legal services?
1: Well, the, the American model uh, ha- has been influential, but one of the things that is really interesting about the cost of legal services in this form is that it actually seems to be it's inversely related to uh, or, or you know, directly related to the level of development. So you know, the, the simpler a society is, the more likely it is that more people have easy access to legal, legal help um and i, I think uh, and and as it the 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 in in the lack of ability to access legal services the cost the complexity tends to grow along with the cost and complexity of uh, of the economy um and what you'd like to do is say you want really smart legal infrastructure uh but smart doesn't have to be more more complex and expensive um I think one of the important models to know about here is actually in, uh, in the UK, uh, where there are many fewer restrictions on the practice of law. Uh, so in the UK, um, and this, is under, this, is, this, this has been true for, for forever, um, and that is that there, anybody can provide legal, uh, legal advice or uh, help draft documents, wills, contracts, etc., in in England and Wales. Uh, So that's never been restricted. Um, And it is restricted to uh, licensed lawyers in the United States. Um, And uh, one of the things that means is that, you know, unions can provide legal advice, um, community organizations, volunteer bureaus, uh, uh, entities that form profit or nonprofit base that, you know, will provide some legal help um uh, maybe under charitable on a charitable basis or under contract. Um, so the so the UK has always had a much less restrictive legal environment than we than we have. Um, but they've also made changes in the last uh, uh, since two thousand and seven um, uh, to to introduce multiple uh, multiple professions and to really try to take on this problem of making sure that the rules are not being decided by the trade association of lawyers. So they've deliberately separated out the regulatory function in professional organizations from the, the trade association function. Uh, so it's, it's um, yeah, it, it, we, we, we are so immersed in it in the, in the U.S. that it's just, it's really important to recognize it doesn't have to look like that.
0: Do and we if we look any- more
1: like medicine. Sorry.
0: No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was
1: going to say, if we looked, if we looked more like uh, uh, medicine, we would, we law uh, would have, um, you know, people with different kinds of life. First of all, you wouldn't need a license for everything um, at the legal, and we could also have many different types of licenses. Um, our, our license is very expensive. It's a three-year graduate degree. After a four-year undergraduate degree, um, and, you know, that's a lot of education. It filters out a lot of, a lot of people. Well, some of those people could be licensed uh, to provide some basic services, help understanding what a subpoena is, help filing the documents in a, uh, a family law case, you know, basic assistance to small businesses trying to manage their compliance with local regulations
0: um, the way we, nurses and and other medical practice, even I think medic, I think the medical field's way too overregulated in terms of licensing. But at least there's some variability.
1: Right, right. And if if medicine was regulated the way law is regulated, every single person who performed any kind of medical care would have to have an MD. Uh, you couldn't have a phlebotomist who's licensed just to take blood. Um, or, you know, and been taught, I mean, licensed is not, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's relatively, you know, minimal, minimally intrusive licensing, I think, uh, nurse practitioners, chiropractors, pharmacists, all of, you know, the way law is organized, every single one of those people would have to be uh, the full-fledged um, MD. Um, and, you know, law, we, you know, as I say, a chunk of this doesn't need to be licensed, which is not to say that a certification system wouldn't still operate, as you mentioned earlier, with, uh, say, kosher food or organic food. You know, it might still be... I mean, it's still the case in the UK. Anybody can provide you with legal advice, but if you've got the money, you're going to go to somebody who's been qualified and got lots, got lots of great experience as a solicitor uh, to give you that advice. But, you know, if it turns out that the you know the former union rep who... You know, spent 30 years in the union, knows a lot about uh, employment and labor law, you yeah, know, and he's a helpful person to have on the other end of the line for, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the people who have a question about their rights at work. And that's feasible in the UK, should be here too.
0: Do we have any evidence that it's better in the UK for, for every, every, everyday people in terms of their access to those services? It's, 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 I assume it's cheaper. Is it? Is it? Do we know?
1: It's, it, so, so this is a, a point I make throughout the book. We have very little systematic data about how well our legal systems are working. I think that's another consequence of the fact that it's, it's kind of fallen on, outside of our usual ways of, of regulating and left to the professions. Um, and it's tricky to explore this in the UK because they've also had phenomenally generous legal aid historically, uh, 60 to 70% of the population qualifying for legal aid in all kinds of matters, family matters, housing, whatever. Um, They've cut that substantially. It's now probably 20, I think 20 to 30% of the population that can access uh, legal aid. Uh, But one of the reasons they were able to have extensive legal aid is because it was less expensive to provide these services. You didn't have to uh, give the contract to uh, a solicitor working in their own, little office, you could give it to a company that was focused on housing benefits cases, for example. Um, One of the pieces of data we do have is the fact that um, uh, surveys indicate that uh, people in the UK facing legal uh, problems, which nobody thinks of as legal problems, by the way, they think of them as housing problems, family problems, you know, misdemeanor problems and so on, small business problems. a much smaller fraction of people in those circumstances um, manage those without some legal help and a much smaller percentage um, do nothing. Studies in the U.S., which again, there's not enough good studies, but U.S. studies says that people facing those kinds of situations, you know, as much as 30 to 40% just don't do anything in response to them. Um, and that percentage in the U.K. is is probably between five and 10%. Uh, Same thing is true in the Netherlands where legal insurance companies are able to have lawyers on staff who work with people who hold the legal insurance. So if you hold legal insurance and you've got a problem with your neighbor, uh, you call up your legal insurer and they can put you directly in touch with a lawyer who can give you uh, help with that problem. Um, And um, I think 40 to 45% of the population in the Netherlands you know, has an insurance policy like that, um, so it's a, it's a very different environment.
0: Let's close with an example that I found very um, eye opening as a reminder of sometimes how hard it is to get outside one's normal way of thinking. You make uh, a thought experiment about uh, what if librarians uh, who have degrees in, after all, in library science. Um, were charged with coming up with a search engine. You'd think that that's their expertise, they're good at looking stuff up, and yet the solution that we have now, which uh, is, is pretty amazingly great on at least the dimensions of finding stuff uh, of, of search engines, uh, was not developed by librarians, but by computer scientists. Talk about that thought experiment and why it leads you to, be, uh, to the importance of, of being innovative in how we think about making the rules.
1: Yeah, so I I think the the you know the what do we know about the the ways in which innovation happens, the environments in which innovation happens? We know that they are uh, environments uh, with a lot of diverse participants, lots of different points of view, lots of different ways of thinking about problems. Um, you know, you have a, you have a rich, diverse idea pool. Uh, you have people who are willing to take risks and capital that's willing to take risks. And, uh, you know, you're, if you're really looking for something that's innovative, you know, it's not coming from the established uh, providers. Uh, Clay Christensen has, has taught us a lot about that, I think, yeah. with the innovators dilemma um and uh so so the thought experiment there was to say look if you'd left it to if if you had the kind of rules in library science that we have in law you would have said look this is our turf we are the ones who are responsible for organizing the world's information and helping you find it uh and anybody who wants to provide that service uh needs to be licensed as a librarian and trained in our ways of doing things it would have been you know, okay, we need to get better at classification cataloging. (laughs) It seems very reasonable, right? Um, But what we know is that, you know, the truly innovative move generally comes in from the outside with somebody who hasn't been steeped in that problem saying, huh, how come we don't do it this way? And, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, they weren't actually looking to Uh, figure out how to find information you know they were they were saying gosh we're we have this capacity now with the internet to access all of this information and when we go looking and we just do keyword searches uh, we find a lot of junk Uh, I really just want to know where's the good stuff where's the stuff I'm really uh, that's that's really important and you know the development of the PageRank algorithm to develop that uh, was a solution that maybe librarians would they eventually have gotten there? I don't know. Somebody told me recently that that there was more discussion of this uh, than 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 I realized. But um, you know the 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 path everybody was going on the path that Yahoo was down at the beginning of the Internet in the late nineties was cataloging. They hired armies of librarians to review every single website and catalog it the way a library catalogs. Well, that just was quickly completely snowed under by the volume of stuff on the internet. You can't have a human being reviewing everything. Um, And uh, so I would say, look, if, if we regulated uh, library science, the way we regulate law, we would have said only librarians can be doing it. Um, and I think it's really important. Law- lawyers need to be uh, deeply involved in the process of innovation. Lawyers are uh, well steeped in, in how rule systems actually work on the ground, and that's critical, and what kinds of uh, legal needs are out there. Um, but we also need software engineers and uh, people who are great at thinking about organizations and uh, people who are great at, you know, coming up with better customer service models and pricing models. We need all of those kinds of people involved in, in, uh, in, in developing systems that work better for us. Um, and I, I think opening up that process is probably the most critical uh, move we can make.
0: My guest today has been Jillian Hadfield. Jillian, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thanks, Russ. Really enjoyed it.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.